Good morning. If you have your Bibles with you, would you open them right now to the book of Ecclesiastes? We're going to continue. This is part two of our summer series that we'll be here for in a while in this incredible, life-changing book. And now we are, what we're doing is we're continuing. It was really sweet worship. And we're going to continue to exalt in God now via the means of his word. And so if you have your Bibles, uh, I'm going to read. Our text is actually like the rest, like from verse 12 of chapter 1 all the way to verse 26 of chapter 2. But because that takes me about eight minutes to read, I think I'm going to spread it out and read it as we go. So I'm going to read uh, right now so that we can kind of set our minds in this. I'm going to read verses, so chapter 1, verses 12 through 18, and then I'm going to read chapter 2, verses 24 through 26. But in the end, we'll have read all of these verses today. So the Word of God says this. I, the preacher have been king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I have applied my heart to seek to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given the children of men to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity, a striving after the wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. I have applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this also is a striving after the wind, for in much wisdom is much vexation. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. And now if you look down at verse 24 of chapter 2, The preacher goes on, there is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in all his toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God, for apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy, but to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. Let's pray again. Father, we come before you today needing to hear your word to give us perspective. We do not rely on our own perspective for we know that it is skewed because of sin and because of our fallen world. We don't want to try to figure this out. We know that that will end badly. We want to trust in you through your revealed word. And so, Father, I pray, we pray together in one accord that you would correct our perspective on life, on on wisdom, on pleasure, on comfort, on our work, even, even on our suffering. Would you correct our thinking on this, on, on what the meaning of life is, what our lives are all about? And Lord, at the end of the day, we do not want to waste our lives here. We want to bring you glory. We want to see you exalted. And we want to live forever with you. Please help me, Father, this morning. Help me to 
be small while you be big. Through your word, through your gospel, through the hope that we have in Jesus. Move now, Father, I pray, with your spirit in our hearts. Move in unbelievers who have come here this morning for whatever reason. I pray that you would help them to take take thought and estimate of their lives and what they're living for and what is truly important in this life. And Lord, I pray by your grace that they would turn and place faith in Jesus and help us all, Lord, to leave here with our hope and our confidence in Christ. And it is in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, I pray, amen. As I was preparing this sermon, literally the day that I was really putting my hand to the work, um, a famous pastor from New York City and a best-selling author, many of, many of whose books I have read and profited greatly from, died of pancreatic cancer. Timothy Keller was 72 years old. He leaves a legacy of winsome gospel witness and cultural exegesis. He was really good, really insightful at looking at our culture and and uh, seeing where our idols are. I, I, was, I greatly benefited from him. And don't take that to mean I agreed with everything the man wrote. That's not what that means. What it means is I am incredibly thankful to the Lord for the way that he used him in my life. I never met him though, just his books and heard him speak a few times. But in honor of Keller, I found an old post in honor of him, but also because it serves our purposes in this text really well. I found an old post of his where he dissects our modern view of the meaning of life Uh, and the conditions that we, people like us, often attach to our significance or our meaning, things that we think mean that we're meaningful, that our lives are meaningful. And I found it to be, I found it online, uh, but I think it's also in his book, Counterfeit Gods, although um, I didn't go check. I, I think I remember reading it in Counterfeit Gods, maybe. But here's what Keller said. I, I got this, um, I think I got it from his Facebook account. But here's what he said. Life only has meaning and significance if, and then he's going to give us a whole bunch of possibilities. Life only has meaning and significance if I have power and influence over others. And he calls it the power idolatry. If I am loved and respected by so-and-so, approval idolatry. If I have the kind of pleasure experience, a particular quality, a particular quality of life, comfort idolatry. My life has meaning and significance if I am able to get mastery over my life in this area, control idolatry. Or if people are dependent on me and need me, Helping idolatry. If, if someone is there to protect me and keep me safe, dependence. If I'm completely free of obligations and responsibilities to take care of someone else, independence. I'm highly productive. I'm significant. This is a big one, right? I'm significant if I am highly productive and get a lot done. Work idolatry. I am, my, my life is significant and I have meaning if I am highly productive, or I'm sorry, if I am being recognized for my accomplishments, if I'm excelling, if people are giving me accolades. I'll just skim through these quick. If I have a certain level of wealth, financial freedom, or very nice possessions. 
if I am adhering to my religion's moral codes and accomplished in its activities and other people in that religion look at me and say, well done. I am significant, my life is significant and I have meaning if this one person is in my life and happy to be there or happy to be with me, the individual person idolatry. If I am, if I feel I am totally independent and organized, oh, sorry, I've skipped that one. My race and my culture is recognized as superior. Some people think this. Racial, cultural idolatry. My life has meaning if a particular social grouping or professional grouping or other group lets me in. If my children or my parents are happy and happy with me. If Miss or Mr. Wright is in love with me. If my political or social cause is making progress and ascending in influence and power. My life and my my life has meaning and significance if I have a particular kind of look or body image or if people view me in a certain way. I mean, all of those are obviously wrong. I say obviously, but we think them. Don't you think some of those? Don't you, don't you sometimes attach the meaning of your life, significance in your life with something like that? They're obviously wrong. I love how he ties them to the actual heart of the matter, the idolatry of finding significance in those sorts of things. I think that's what it is. It's idolatry. And yet the question remains then, what is the meaning of life? You ever ask that? What is the meaning of life? I, I wonder what it is for you. What, what makes your life here on planet earth feel meaningful? That's the age-old question that people have been asking forever. I, you may have asked that question. You may be asking it. I actually hope that you are asking that question this morning. What is the meaning of your life? What makes your life significant? That's the question that has prompted me to preach through Ecclesiastes this summer. The Bible offers the only credible answer to that all-important question. And it's framed out with us with style by the preacher who is certainly... King Solomon he has applied himself to, a, to the question. And the book of Ecclesiastes, I think, is a sweet gift from God to help make plain the answer. Friends, if you get this question, this is why this is so important, okay? Stick with me here. If you get this question wrong, you will waste your life. I think that's why Ecclesiastes is so important and so helpful and why I have planned to dwell on it these many warm months of the year, May, June, and July. If you get this wrong, you will set your heart on what is a breath, on what is a vapor. You may recall from two weeks ago in the sermon that I preached on the first part of this, of chapter one, I tried to set the stage to understand Ecclesiastes well by considering one of the key words in the book. The word is habel, and it's translated in the ESV as vanity, and it literally means breath or whisper of air. When the preacher declares vanity, vanity, all is vanity, I don't believe that he means that it is all meaningless. I don't think that's what he's saying. I don't think he's saying it's all pointless. It'd be difficult to see a meaningful message in Ecclesiastes if that's what the preacher meant. A wisp of smoke is not, think about this for a second, smoke is not meaningless. 
yet its significance, however significant it is in that moment, is severely limited on account of its transience and its brevity. That's what the preacher means. The significance of all the things that we see in this life around us, and indeed even our own brief lives themselves, is limited on account of its or our, trans, our, our transience and our brevity. And in our passage, he gives a hint as to why that's so. It's a summary statement, I think, one of the summary statements in this book. You can see it in verse 15 of chapter 1. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I think that is the reality of this fallen world. The world has been made crooked. It is lacking. This is life east of Eden. This is what it's like. And as we'll see in our passage, one of the huge mistakes we make is that we live out this vapor trying to push back against that reality using various means. We try to make straight what is crooked and we do so on our own terms. And it does not work. And you know why it doesn't work? Because it cannot be done. Today we're tracking along with the preacher as he shares with us his big experiment which he conducted to see if we can make straight what is crooked. Can we do that through learning? Can we do that through pleasure? Can we do that through the work of our hands or through our achievements or successes or through the accumulation of wealth? Can we find the ultimate meaning, the straightness in this crooked world on those terms? The preacher is putting that to the test as the ultimate lab. He's donned his white coat and in the petri dishes are several ways we try to make straight what is crooked. So let's consider his findings and let them inform the way we live our lives in this vapor of vapors. Surprisingly, it is through that that we do find significance. That's where we do find meaning. We find what is not a vapor, what is not vanity, and how what is crooked becomes finally and fully straight. And we find it in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. So the preacher runs three tests mainly. Wisdom, pleasure, and achievement. In verses 12, 1, 12 through 18, which I read a moment ago, he runs the test on wisdom. Will applying his heart to understanding life's mysteries and knowing things be what makes his life meaningful and significant? Now we should note that the preacher is the perfect guy in the perfect context, to run this test. He's the perfect researcher for this. The Lord gave Solomon outstanding wisdom. He could perceive, he could observe, he could discern better than anyone else on the planet. God had given him wisdom. And so this wise man is the perfect researcher to take on our question. He set out to discover, he set out to discover if it is by discovery that we find true meaning in life. Is it the quest? You know, everyone wants a quest. Is it the quest that makes life meaningful. Look at, verses, look at verse 17 for the test results. He says it's a wisp of smoke, a striving after the wind. After the quest, the heart of man is far from satisfied. So I, we can rule that out. It's not great learning and discovery that you will find the meaning of life. It is, if it is a God to you, it's a counterfeit God. If you treat wisdom and knowledge like a God, it will let you down. It is a terrible God. Then in chapter 2, 1 through 11, he runs the same test, but this time with pleasure, wealth, and comfort. I think it's all one category. Let's read those verses and just 
see what he discovers here. He says, I, this verse, chapter two, verse one, he says, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also is vanity. I said of laughter, it's mad. And of pleasure, what is its use? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during these few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses. I planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted them with all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest and the growing trees. I bought male and female slaves. I had slaves who were born in my house. I also had great possession of herds and flocks more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of men, of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me. And whatever my eyes desired, here it is, whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure for my heart found pleasure in all my toil. And this was the reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had experienced in doing it. And behold, all was vanity, a striving after the wind. There was nothing to be gained under the sun. He's mixing a few of these themes, but we're gonna try and pull them apart. Will seeking to enjoy all of life's pleasurable moments make life meaningful and significant? Again, Solomon was the perfect guy to go find this out for us. God had richly blessed him with more wealth and means than any of his contemporaries, any, anybody in history. He had slaves to do his work. He had treasures to buy his stuff. He had entertainment. He mentions the singers. He had the best food, the best drink. He had women. He could pursue every kind of relational intimacy, physical intimacy, comfort, pleasure. He can enjoy every benefit that absolutely limitless means, limitless wealth and position could bring a man. Many of you hear that and you think cynically, oh, that would be really nice. Like, sure, I can see where he goes with that, but it'd be really nice to try it, right? It'd be nice to have so much money that you did not need to have boundaries or limits, It'd be nice to be able to enjoy pleasure so much that you didn't have to put any boundaries on that pleasure. You just enjoy it. To have so many people to serve you, to have pleasures in relationships without boundaries. Doesn't that sound nice, enticing? Like winning the lottery a billion times in a row, wouldn't that be nice? Sadly, some young people will set out to achieve some version of that, a limited version of that, not a full version of that. No one can do the fullness of this, hoping against hope that it will bring you significance to your life. You don't have it, right? But if you did, you believe that you'd be happy and satisfied and content and find purpose for this life of yours. Some of you believe that. Some of you are so cynical that you can read Solomon and his efforts and think, yes, but I'd still like to try it. What folly! We have before us a man who did all of that, everything we could imagine and more, and he set out to not withhold anything from his eyes. Verse 10, 
And his conclusion, as you can see in verse 11, is that it was, it was all vanity, a striving after the wind. Finally, in verse, also in this passage, I'm going to read 2, 18 through 23, but in some of the passages I just read, he runs the test again, but this time the variable that he puts in place is achievement. Okay, so let me read chapter 2, verses 18 through 23. He says, I hated all of my toil in which I toiled under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be a wise, he will be wise or a fool, yet he will be the master for all which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and the striving of his heart for which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. I mean, this is a guy who built significant things like temples and houses and palaces, cities. And he is saying that it came up short in making his life and his legacy significant. Because you just leave it all to someone else. The, the ranch, the ranch goes into the hands of another, right? Maybe your offspring, maybe it will sadly get divided and kind of leave the family. Maybe it will go to some rich dude from Boston who just wants to hunt on it. Consider it, friends. Will working hard and having a good career, and growing a big herd, and saving lots of money, and having a big retirement fund, will it scratch the itch that's in your chest that keeps on itching? Will it finally give you meaning and purpose? Oh, so many of us will not take the time to consider Solomon's experiment, and we will try this, and maybe when we are old, and we have wasted many years we will see what Solomon was trying to tell us all along. He went after this with all the means imaginable and the itch still itched. And he tells us why right in the middle of these tests. This is verses two, chapter two, verses 12 through 17. You know why it's all still vanity and a striving after the wind? Listen to those verses. So I turn to consider wisdom and madness and folly for what can a man do that comes after the king? Only what has already been done. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, and there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceived that the same event happened to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what, what happens to a fool will also happen to me also. Why then have you been so very wise? And I said in my heart, this also is vanity. For of the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in all the days to come, all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just as the fool. So I hated life because what is done under the sun was grievous to me for all is vanity and a striving after the wind. Do you remember, kids in this room, you might remember this, Grug from the Croods. It's 
an old movie now, 10 years old. I have sadly seen it way more times than I should have seen it. <laughs> but The Croods, this animated movie about a caveman family trying to survive. Um, Groog told his family stories every night. You remember these stories? Um, he'd have some story about his obvious motive was to try to keep his family safe. He was super worried about them getting eaten or crushed or something. And he didn't want them to venture too far from the cave. So every night, Grug told a story that ends with the same three words. And he died. And he'd slam his hand on the wall. Grug would emphasize these words. He wanted them to know that's the end of venturing too far away from the cave. It made for lame stories, but friend, that really does seem to be the final three words of everyone's story. Think of anyone in history who's made a significant mark on this world. Or think of anyone who didn't, if you can even remember his name. The final three words of all the stories, whether a person makes a huge mark in this world or was invisible, is the same. And he died. Or she died. How does that make a difference in the way we view significance in life's pursuits? How does our understanding of the brevity of our life and that death is coming, how does that change the way we view things? Oh, friends, much in every way. Imagine there are two guys at the, tall of a re- at the top of a really tall cliff. Two guys. Or whatever. Their toes are right at the precipice. They're right there, right, right on the edge. And they have, you give them these two great big duffel bags. They're huge. And you tell them, you can put whatever you want into those duffel bags. Just load it up. You stuff them with whatever you want. Whatever your heart's desires, you can put it in those bags. Do you like gold? you want gold? Fill it up. Put lots of gold in those bags. You like big bank accounts? You like sports cars? It's a really big bag. Put them in there. You like, you, you like an RV? A camper? A passport and some ticket money to do a little international vacay? You want a comfy requirement of retirement? Go for it. Just put it in the bag. These are big duffel bags. How about women? Or if you're a woman, how about men? Warm relationships, pleasure. Have at it. Put them in this nice big ventilated bag. Maybe something a bit classier. Maybe degrees from prestigious universities or accolades from your colleagues or some accomplishment. Maybe you published that book esteem from your community at being good at what you do. Yours. Put it in the bag. They're heavy bags now, aren't they? Right? I mean, significance is a weighty thing. And now these bags are heavy. You can feel the heft of these bags. Now take a step forward. That's why these pursuits are vanity. Nothing in that duffel bag is going to feel significant and worthwhile and weighty in the moment that you fall down. Maybe even while you're falling down from the cliff, you can think, I have what I've won. I have lived a good life. But then the ground comes, friend, and it is 
over. And he died. Just like verse 14 says, I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. They all die. I just imagine Solomon walking with his wife through the graveyard. I just imagine his wife, him walking in the graveyard with his wife, looking around, and he says, Hey, Bathsheba. Maybe he called her Beth. I don't know. Hey, Beth, look. That grave right there, that's the grave of the village idiot. Of course he died. He was a fool. Look at his gravestone. It says idiot on it. That's what fools do. They die. But then Beth says, I don't know. Hey, Solo, look over there. Isn't that going to be your spot? Your grave? And he died. You know what the reality of death does for our perspective? The reality of death changes what we want to do with this life we have been given. And the way we view things like pleasure and comfort and wealth and suffering. Look with me again, please. At the words of Solomon, chapter 2, verse 24 through 25. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God, for apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? Now, you might find, as I did in the beginning, that conclusion a little confusing. Didn't he just say that all those things are vanity, ultimately? So why does he say now that there is nothing better than to eat and drink and find enjoyment in your work? And he says it's from the hand of God. It's not bad. It's from the hand of God. You see, in Solomon's perspective, there are two radically different ways to view things like food and drink and sex and marriage and work. You could pursue those things so that your life will be meaningful and significant and happy, and you will be disappointed by all of them. If you need them to make your life matter, you will find in the end that your life didn't matter on account of those things. They are all a vapor, a striving after the wind. Or you can enjoy those things as gifts from the hand of God because of God's grace to you. Enjoy them for what they are, gifts. Not pursue them for what they were never intended to be, gain. Gifts, not gain. Not things to put in your duffel bag before you hit the bottom so that you have something heavy to carry off the cliff. They are gifts along the way, not gain that makes your life have meaning. You see the difference? It is massive. Your work is not what makes your life significant. Your work is to be enjoyed as a gift from the hand of God, a way to be faithful and productive and to glorify God and to be generous to others. Marriage does not make your life matter. Marriage is a gift that God gives for your flourishing and enjoyment and pleasure and procreation. It is not ultimate. It is good. It's good. Brother who just got married. But it is not ultimate. Marriage does not make your life matter. It's a gift from God. 
It's God's gift to you. We should enjoy it as a gift, not pursue it as gain. The perspective of death creates in our hearts a longing for what is truly significant. Or to put it another way, it creates a longing for transcendence, for what to grab on to what is not vapor, to what is not a wisp of smoke. There is a reason, not to load up with illustrations this morning, but there is a reason why very wealthy people often pursue immortality. There's a reason. There's a reason in our hearts why people pursue immortality, especially very wealthy people. If you want to do something fun later today, not now, but later today, go Google the line, super rich people are freezing their bodies for the future. Got that? Super rich people are freezing their bodies for the future. You know why such stupid ideas exist? Because your looming death and my looming death makes us want to live forever. We pursue all of these things so that we might enjoy them forever. That's what we want. Joy forever. It's what every human heart wants. Joy forever. But then death comes knocking. And we lose it all. It's left to another. It's all vanity, a grasping of the wind. You can feel Solomon's angst, can't you? So stupid rich people want to freeze their bodies and their brains so that sometime in the future, the world might figure out how to thaw them out safely and they can keep on living forever. They have filled their duffel bags full and they don't want to hit the ground. You see, the inevitability of death pushes in us a desire for transcendence, for eternity, for what is crooked in this world to finally be made straight. We want to live forever. And I think that is the big message of Ecclesiastes. You cannot make straight what is crooked by your own means and on your own terms. The preacher himself has tried all the ways you could imagine and he has found what is crooked stays crooked. What is crooked cannot be made straight. In that way, the book of Ecclesiastes is an arrow pointing our longing hearts and our unmet desires And our affections, our misplaced often affections, it points all of those things towards the Lord Jesus Christ. You see that desire in your heart for transcendence. Transcendence was put there by God. Death because of sin in this world means it's crooked now, but you still long for what is straight. You still long for what is truly significant. The book of Ecclesiastes teaches us that we cannot get there on our own terms. Push back on that truth as you may, friend, young person. Push back all you want on this truth. You will still find it to be true. You cannot get there on your own terms. Oh, won't you please stop trying? That reality should wake us up to the goodness and the sweetness of the gospel. Jesus Christ died and rose again so that what is crooked could be made straight forever. You cannot straighten what is crooked in your own terms. Your pursuit of wisdom and wealth and pleasure and comfort and work, it all goes as the vapor goes. And he died. Jesus died. He died for you. He died and he rose again. And by faith in him, we see the futility of searching for significance in things around us. You were meant to have joy forever, friend. In Christ. And that's the only place to find it. 
So instead, we seek true significance and true meaning in life, indeed, life itself from Jesus and from him alone once we've listened to the message of the preacher. So let me close this by reading to you a passage from Colossians. Colossians 3, 1 through 4. I think it's part of the answer, the, the answer to the question of significance that we encounter in the book of Ecclesiastes on this side of the cross. So those verses say, this is Colossians 3, 1 through 4. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died. You have died. And your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. That, friends, is true significance. Let it shape the way you live. Let it shape what you pursue. Let it shape the way you view things like marriage, and like money, and like your work. They're not things to set your minds on, ultimately. Set your minds on things above. Enjoy what God has given you. And set your minds on things above. That's how we should view, that's how, I mean, we let this shape how we enjoy the good gifts that come from the hand of God, and what you value, and what you teach your children to value. Let this shape the way you run after what you run after in this life. And friends, my heart's desire is that you will heed that message so that you will not waste your life. Let's pray. Our Lord, we are grateful that we don't have to run these tests. We don't have to figure out how to have joy and life. We don't have to try everything and find it wanting, we could turn to the person in the work of Christ. Your word makes it clear. And Lord, I pray that through your spirit, you would make it clear in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.